Uh, Good morning, church. We are still in our series on the parables, and we come to to this one that has been the subject of considerable discussion through the centuries, uh, and some, well, sort of dodgy songwriting, and we'll get to that in a little bit as well. But I want to acknowledge with you, as we look back over the parables that we have covered and forward to the ones that are yet to come, that that the vast majority of the parables of Jesus have as their central theme the kingdom of God. And, and that's, that's a revolutionary idea in the world of Jesus. It's an equally revolutionary idea in the world today. And we argue a lot about whether society is better now than it was a generation ago, whether our cities are better, whether our country is better, whether our kids are better prepared for the world or not. And most of the arguments, despite the passion with which they are given, are about relatively small differences in degrees. And if you're honest, and if you look at at the vast sweep of history, uh, for centuries, human, human civilization has just been devastated by war and racism and injustice, by crime and disease and alienation. The fact is the world has been awash in this stuff for as long as we can remember. And because of that, almost every society, almost every culture has these ancient ideas, these legends. And they say something basically like this. The world is not the way it's meant to be. And the world didn't used to be like this. The world was once bright and unsullied and beautiful. But somehow it's, it's torn, it's, it's broken, it's fallen. But that's not the way it will be. Someday it's going to be mended. Someday it'll be restored. And so across cultures and throughout literature, there, there is this sort of undercurrent, this, this taproot that goes back into that feeling that there's something wrong and also looks forward to the idea that it will one day be, be put right. And songs like this one, from the ashes, a fire will be woken. From the shadows shall spring, renewed shall be the blade that was broken, and crownless again shall be the king. Tolkien. <laughs> but let's let's shift from from fictional legend um, to powerful truth. When Jesus came, his favorite self-designation, his way of referring to himself, more often than not, was as the Son of Man. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Was his question. And when we read those words, it doesn't mean that much to us. It just sounds sort of like, sure, you're a son of a man. I'm a son of a man. We're, we're all son of man. It's a way of saying that you're a human being. That's not what the listeners heard when he used that term. The son of man was an expression, again, that tapped into that deep longing for the world to be put right again. And it's, it's a key figure, the son of man, in one of the oldest and most loved, most cherished, and, and most expected prophecies of the Old Testament. It comes in Daniel, in chapter 7. There's a prophecy that in the future, this great majestic figure will appear in the heavens, riding on the clouds at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. He will be the Son of Man, and He will heal 
the universe. He'll mend everything that was broken and all tears will be wiped away. And Jesus shows up and he says, I am the Son of Man and I'm bringing with me the kingdom of God. And you can understand why people were electrified when they first heard that. He wasn't just saying, if you elect me, I'll, I'll reduce taxes and I'll get the economy back on track and, and I'll put out some capital expenditure products or projects and, and we'll get unemployment under control. What he's saying is, I'm the son of man. I'm here to bring God's revolution. I am God's revolution. And if you receive me, I will bring that revolutionary power into your life and it will transform your relationships, your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with others and and with creation itself. I'm going to bring this new reality into your life and through you, it will flow into the world. It's an immense claim that Jesus is making. It was astonishing. What he's saying really is all of the old prophecies, all of the old longings that people had That's what I'm bringing. It's coming to pass in me. I want you to keep all of that background in mind as we dig into this parable in Luke chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, open them up. You want them open to Luke 14. This this dramatic story that depicts the kingdom of God as a feast. The kingdom of God is a feast, but not the kind of feast that you would think. This is a feast for the humble. You know, when we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we will do today, this is not just a backward glance at what Jesus did. It's a foretaste of what's yet to come, about what he's doing and what he has yet to do. The kingdom of God is a feast, but it's a feast for the humble. And we're going to unpack that a little bit at a time, but let's start this way. Um, How many of you, those of you who've spent a little bit of time reading through the Gospels, How many of you are aware of the first miracle that Jesus performed, the first recorded miracle? John chapter 2, the very first miracle, he's invited to a feast, a wedding feast. You remember what happens? Yeah, low point in the party, they run out of wine, he points to a bunch of bats, he does the work, and it's wine, but not just wine, it's great wine, and it takes a mediocre party and turns it into a great party. This was the first miracle of Jesus. And sometimes we read it and think, well, that's kind of frivolous. I mean, mean, of all the announcements that you could make of the miraculous presence of God in the world, why this? Remember that, that what we call miracles in the New Testament are never called miracles in the New Testament. They're called signs. Why are they called signs? Because when Jesus does things like this, these aren't just meant to be bare, naked exercises in supernatural power. These are marquees. These, these are supernatural bulletin boards. They're signs that point to something. They're a way of speaking to the truth of who he is and what he's about. So why start the ministry of the Son of Man on earth by throwing the greatest party that the country had ever seen. Why not, why not do something else, something less frivolous? And if you scratch your head and say, well, that's, that's kind of odd. Why in the world would Jesus start that way? Then you don't really understand what the kingdom of God is about. And you're not alone. 
Because the vast majority of people, those looking outside of the church and, and maybe even those inside of the church, think that Christianity is basically this. Keep your nose clean. Obey the rules. Pass out the bulletins. Spend your time once a month at the soup kitchen. Stay in line. It's not a fun life, but it's the price that you pay to get into heaven. And if you do it all well, the door swings wide for you. That's Christianity. Instead, Jesus says the kingdom of God is a banquet. And I am the Lord of the feast. And I've come to bring festival joy into the world. Where my face turns, trees laugh and sing for joy. Where my feet pass, the desert blooms. And where I raise my royal scepter, there will be inevitably, inexorably, inescapably joy. And having said that, he tells this parable. Absolutely, the kingdom of God is a banquet, is a feast. But it's not what you'd think. If you and I were were to plan the party to end all parties the great festival of our generation. We'd want to be very careful, would we not, about the guest list? You'd invite the people who were the most fun, the most together, the people that you'd want to be in a snapshot with, uh, the people who everybody else wants to rub shoulders with, the confident, the attractive, the A-list. The kingdom of heaven is a feast to end all feasts, but it's not the kind that you would think. This This feast takes humility. To to get in, you have to humble yourself. Uh, to, To enjoy it, it takes humbling. To allow its power to course through you takes humbling. And so what I'd like to do with you this morning, as we work through the parable, is show you, and you can turn on the back page of your order of service, four different ways that the feast, the kingdom feast of God, requires humility, if you're going to experience its joy and its power and its significance, what is it that we have to do to humble ourselves? And here's the first. We need to humble ourselves under the slowness of the kingdom. What do we mean by that? Have a look in, uh, in the, 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 the uh, parable itself in Luke 14. Have a look at verse 16. The Lord of the feast sends out invitations Is the feast ready? Not ready yet. Invitations go out before the feast is prepared. The kingdom of heaven is like that. The feast is in preparation. Maybe you get a taste of it. You sneak into the kitchen. You sample what they're making. You smell it. You know there's there's this incredible event coming. There's joy in knowing it. It's, It's joyful because you know you're invited, but it's not here yet. It's not here in all of its abundance. Every parable of Jesus shows this to one degree or another. The kingdom of heaven is something that you taste now, but it's not fully realized. Some of that power leaks into your life now, but it doesn't completely heal. It won't completely restore until the last day. It's already here, but it's not yet. I guess they call it a paradox, right? The kingdom is here, but it's not yet. And to enter a kingdom like that requires humility. It means you have to be humble before the slowness of that. It's kind of like traveling in a car with kids. 
right? The minute you pull out of the driveway, the question starts. And what's the question? Are we there yet? That's the kingdom question. Are we there yet? And the answer is, we're on the way. But no, we're not there yet. And if you're, if you're disillusioned and despair about the presence of graves in your life and hospital beds and anxiety medication, you're on the way. But we're not there yet. And you have to humble yourself under the schedule of God. Among the most difficult commandments in Scripture is the one that says simply, wait upon the Lord. Here's the second thing. We need to learn how to humble ourselves under the freeness of the kingdom. Have a look in verse 17, the second, second half of that verse, where the servant goes out and says, now it's time to come. Everything is ready. Everything is ready. The kingdom of God is not like an a la carte restaurant where you have to pay as you go, where it requires money to get in. Nor is it like a potluck supper where you have to prepare something in advance and bring it. Everything is ready, the servant says. You can't earn your ticket. It can only be received. In fact, it's better than anything that you could pay for. And it's being prepared for you. I mean, doesn't it feel like every week, no matter what part of Scripture we're looking at, we're encountering this same theme? Because it's there throughout Scripture. The kingdom of God, the gift of salvation, is something that has to be received and received humbly because it cannot be earned. It has to be something that you receive. And of course, to receive something without feeling you have to give anything for it, without taking any preparation, it requires a profound act of humility, of submission. Somebody invites you to a restaurant, the fanciest restaurant in the city, says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for everything, the cover charge, $250 a plate, but I promise you it's worth it. You've never had a meal like this. I just want you to come, be my guest. You say, that's great. Just let me run home. I'll microwave a couple of TV dinners and I'll bring them along. And your friend would be really right to say, you just, you don't understand. You have no idea how great this place is. You cannot supplement it by anything that comes out of the microwave oven. That would just ruin it. In fact, it would be an insult. I just want you to come. You see why it requires humility? I don't want to be a charity case. I can pay my own way. I, I want to earn it. But you're insulting the Lord of the feast. Come, the servant says. Everything is prepared. Holding on to your guilt. Holding on to your anger. Pretending that you have to earn your spot at the table. Looks like humility. It's not. It's pride. And it gets in the way. Humble yourself under the freeness of the kingdom. Here's the third thing. And and this is where the Sunday school song comes in. You remember the one? I cannot come. I cannot come to the banquet. You know that one? Yeah. I have bought me a wife. I have married a cow. I have fields. Or something like that. Yeah. I did that the wrong way around. In fact, we all did it the wrong way around. 
We thought it was funny. We didn't realize how patriarchal it was. But The first set of people that the Lord of the Feast sends out his invitations to, they're the in crowd. They're the right crowd. These are his neighbors, his peers. They have their own homes. This is good society. And one by one, they all find ways to get out of it. And having done all the work of preparing the feast, the master of the house sends out the servants a second time and says, bring in the poor, bring in the lame, the outcast, the needy, the weak. What's he teaching? Something pretty amazing. In fact, in teaching this, it's kind of like a sword that cuts two ways. First of all, this tells us something that that history absolutely proves. The closer you are to high society by education, by vocation, by economics, by class, the closer you are to the nexus of power and influence, the more trouble you're going to have with the gospel. The teaching of this parable is just clear throughout history. The kingdom of God tends to flow towards the needy and the poor and the oppressed. How many times do you see that theme in the pages of Scripture? Jesus would say to the Pharisees, the the influence brokers, those closest to the nexus of power in that part of the world, to the educated, to the top of the social class, he would say, the whores and the whoremongers are going to get into the kingdom before you. He didn't say they wouldn't get in, but he's just noting how very hard it is to get beyond themselves. How many times do you see places where where it says that the common people, the average Joe, heard Jesus and heard him gladly? The gospel is the great leveler in the world because it says the same thing to the powerful and to the powerless. It says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God doesn't matter where you think you are on the ladder or the pecking order. It applies equally to all of you. But it always has been true that the, the culture, that the elite of society, and maybe you along with me have to ask ourselves where we fit on that ladder. But those who are most cultured are desperate to remake Christianity and get rid of most of what's at the heart of it. Let's get rid of the whole idea of being born again. That's primitive. The whole idea of Jesus' death on the cross and the blood and all this talk about about sin and having to receive Christ, that sounds like just ancient malarkey. No, we we remake Christianity to say basically what's important is that we we live decent lives, that we be compassionate people, that we're generous and we're upright and we care for the needs of others, we recognize all religions as basically good, we remake Christianity that way. And here's the irony. The very kind of Christianity that those who are most respectable sneer at won't come to the banquet for is the only kind of Christianity that really transforms lives, especially the lives of the people they claim they care most about those who are marginalized and underprivileged. In the kingdom of God, the power of the kingdom tends to go towards the needy. They understand it. They love it. They hear it. Sometimes we don't as much. There's a prejudice that the haves 
have that the have-nots have not. Try and say that a few times. There's a prejudice that the haves have that the have-nots have not. And so Jesus says, beware. The very primitive born-again religion that respectable people have such a hard time with is the only kind of religion that will really transform the people you most want to help. Why? Because it's not just true for them, it's true for you. And not only that, you need to humble yourself. You need to humble yourself under the commonness of the gospel and realize you are just as much broken as they are. Under your respectability, under your morality, under your education, under your status, you are just as needy and just as much in need of grace as anybody else. And if that insults you, and you haven't humbled yourself under the commonness of the feast. And not only that, I mentioned this cuts both ways. The parable says that the kingdom and the power of the kingdom goes out first towards the people in the alleys. Jesus says, in effect, the folks with stores on Main Street aren't going to come first but the people who've gone to sleep at night in the alleys, they're the, probably the people who will. That's why you need to go out and find them. If you're going to be humbled under the commonness of the gospel, you have to realize that kingdom power flows outward to the most broken and the most needy. And you have to follow the power of the kingdom where it goes. It means a church that is not engaged powerfully and consistently with the needs of those who are most beaten down and neglected in society, has lost touch with the kingdom and with the Lord of the feast. Here's the last place of humility, and it has to do with priorities. Why did those first guests decide that they wouldn't come? I mean, look carefully. This is not a group that we would probably call unbelievers, not using that language of today. Most people seem to think that unbelief means outright rejection of Christianity. Those who say Christianity is a bunch of rubbish, just a lot of bunk. That's not who these people are. In verse 16, it says they were invited. In verse 17, it says the servants come back and say everything's ready now, which means the first time they received the invitations, they didn't say no. They said, yeah, we're coming. There'd be no reason for the servant to come back again if they said no the first time around. They start out believing. They start out saying, oh, sure, we'll be there. But in the end, they're not able to come. Why? Because there's something about the banquet that would disturb the routines and the affairs of their day-to-day lives. Jesus comes and says, I'm the king and I'm moving in tonight, and nothing can get in the way. I have to be first. My kingdom, loyalty loyalty to me as your king, commitment to the business of the kingdom, it has to come first. And if my rules and my values, maybe they make it hard for you to make as much money as you would otherwise, if my values and my law and my rule of your life make you realize suddenly that you maybe have a far smaller pool of people from whom you can date or potentially be married, Suddenly the field is cut down. If my kingdom cramps your style and refuse to come, it shows that you've not really understood my kingdom at all. 
I must come first. I must have authority in your life. It's a question of priority. Have you humbled yourself under the slowness of the kingdom? Or are you like me sometimes, a child throwing a temper tantrum? Because God is not doing the things the way I think He should as quickly as He ought to. Have you humbled yourself under the freeness of the kingdom, willing to see the sheer grace of this table? Or is pride making it impossible for you to say, I give myself fully to you? And have you humbled yourself under the commonness of it, especially those who feel they're already respectable? You see that underneath we are just as needy a group of sinners as those who may have slept in the gutter last night. It just doesn't matter how far away you think you are from the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter how far gone you are. Your goneness is no match for the kingdom. He's able to save to the uttermost. It's never too late. You're never too far gone. You're never too respectable. That's the kingdom. And that's the feast. And before we get there, let's pray to the Lord of the feast. Let's pray together. Now, Father, as we receive your supper, we ask simply that that you would help us to to realize, receive, and celebrate as, as we eat bread and drink from a cup that what we're getting here is a foretaste of the great feast, the last days when all tears will be wiped away. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves in some of the ways we've been looking at this morning so that we can have more of a taste of the kingdom than we may have had last week. And Father, I pray today that some people who have never done so before might enter the kingdom for the first time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.